Our reading is in 2 Corinthians. And I'll read, I won't read everything we have in the bulletin, I'll read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what we cannot see, but what we have faith in, uh, faith as a gift from you. We pray now, please uh, open our minds, uh, awaken our hearts and spirits to where we can not only hear you and hear you clearly, but obey you and love you dearly. We give you thanks and ask you to send your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Our first verse there, 4.16, says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. He had already used that phrase in verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. And so to lose heart would be to lose hope, to lose interest to lose faith in what it is that he was doing. And he's not telling us to, lo- to not lose heart. What's he saying? In verse 1, he says, we do not lose heart. And in verse 16, he says, we do not lose heart. He's just giving you the reason why we never lose heart. He's speaking of himself and fellow ministers, but really all of us, to the degree that we either suffer for our faith or are attempting to share our faith, this speaks to us. So we are who he's referring to here. Now, this is the royal we. As I've said, we've all received mercy. We all have ministries, and so thus we all cannot lose heart if we're truly his. Now, I want to read more than I've already read. I read you only three verses. I'm going to go back to verse 1 here in chapter 4, and I'm going to read up through chapter 5, verse 8. It shouldn't take long, but I'm going to read it slowly, and I'd really like you to pay attention. If it helps, please read along. I know it helps me to be reading along as as I'm listening. So I'll start at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy... We do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. 
For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven, if indeed having been clothed we shall not be found naked. For we are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident... Yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. All men, all people, are body and spirit, physical and metaphysical, material and spiritual. We are, by design, one being that consists of those two components. Those aren't really meant to be separated. God made us one. Now, all people have spirits, regenerate people, unregenerate people. They all have spirits. But Paul here talks about the outward man that's perishing, and that's true of all people then. All people have outward men that are perishing. But he speaks of the inward man being renewed, and not all are being renewed inwardly. Only God's children are being renewed inwardly. And if you can reflect, especially as you're older, if you can reflect on people that you've known as they mature and as they go on through life and get older and older and eventually pass away, 
think of believers versus unbelievers. Now, not all believers age well. They don't all handle it with grace. It's hard. Your outer body is perishing, and so it doesn't go quietly. It has pains. And yet, when you compare the regenerate with the unregenerate, the unregenerate just seem to have endless lists of complaints I've found. And those aren't just simple complaints about their bodies. They're complaints about life. So what's interesting to me is that the people that aren't having a renewing of the Spirit complain most about things that are spiritual. And the people that are spiritual, who have their spirits renewed, complain most about the things that are affecting their body, their physical bodies. But that's, to me, that's just my observation. I don't know if you've seen that to be the case, but I seem to have made that decision myself. There are many non-biblical approaches to both life and death, and we're familiar with them, but let me go ahead and share some with you. Now, regardless of all aspects that separate us apart from belief and unbelief, whether you're pretty or whether you're not, whether you're wealthy or whether you're not, all of those many things, whether you're really, really intelligent, I mean, witty as all get out, or you're just dumb as a rock. All of that spectrum of things by which you could differentiate between people, none of that matters as much as belief versus unbelief in terms of how you're going to respond to pretty much anything in life, and that goes doubly for how you live your life and how you face your death. What's the big deal about death? We sang about it here. Christians, in a sense, look forward to death. There's nothing to fear for us in death. Now, I'm going to give you four types of people, types of ways of looking at life from an unbelieving perspective. You will recognize these. You'll probably think of others. That's fine. I'm not trying to be comprehensive here. But one, I think, is well illustrated by a bumper sticker. I could probably find bumper stickers for all of them. But this one popped into my head. He who dies with the most toys... Wins, you know the word. But he still dies. He who dies with the most toys wins. Now, this is a popular way of looking at death from those who really don't think about it. They don't want to think about it. They purpose not to think about it. They don't attend weddings and funerals because they really couldn't care less. They're out having fun. When their wives might be off going to weddings or funerals, they're out fishing or hunting or golfing or rock climbing or doing whatever it is, a hundred different things you might fill your life with. A few weeks ago, I happened on my Facebook page to find this little short video of a fellow that does this free climbing. And I forget if I mentioned that from the pulpit here a few weeks ago. It was on my mind. I forget if I mentioned it. But this guy will race, race up mountains, just free climbing. Boom, boom, boom. He climbed... 400 feet in four minutes. I can't climb 400 feet of stairs in 10 minutes, even when I was his age. So, I mean, it's remarkable. What he did is remarkable. But when I watched him climb this mountain out in California, I thought, that guy's not going to live long. And so, sure enough, I went and looked him up on the video, because all it had was his name. And I went and looked him up, and his name was Dan 
Osman, and he was this just world-famous fast mountain climber, free climber, and he did die in 1998. He died at the age of like 35, and he was jumping off of a Yosemite mountain with a rope, like a bungee jumping, but not from a bridge, but like right off a mountain. So he'd, he attached it, went running off. And when it grew taut, it snapped, and he fell to his death. So when I watched that video and I saw how that man faced life, I thought, he's not long for this earth. And sure enough, he wasn't. I don't know how long after this video was filmed he died, but it probably wasn't that long. So see, that is how some people face life. It's just, you know, grab it, take it, seize it. And you're really only living if you're that close to death. And so, you know, probabilities get people like that. And so they die young. They flame out. You know, live hard, leave a pretty corpse. So that's one way of living life. A second way of living life is, or addressing death, I guess, maybe even in this case, is that, okay, you pursue, you pursue, you pursue, you become wildly successful, you have all this money, but now you're facing your mortality, and you're beginning to think of your, what's the word? Your legacy. What are you going to leave to this world as a legacy? And so you start giving money away, and often it comes with the requirement that whomever you're giving this money away to name something after you. Because, see, people often that are unbelievers, that are pursuing success in this world, they are attached to their name, to their success. This is, this is why they're living life large like they are. They've been so consumed with accumulating, though, that now they develop the same fervor, disaccumulating. And so they're giving away all this money, and they're stamping their name on all these things. And so that's just another way to face life and death that, that unbelievers can fall into. Another one, and now we're kind of getting into a more spiritual way of looking at this. Another way of facing life and death is a points system. I think we're all familiar with this system. People have a general sense of an afterlife. They may not know God, but they're not one of those ones that doubts they're fighting against God. They might oppose your version of what they're saying is religion, of what you're saying, this is right, and they're saying, oh, no, how can you know? And they'll challenge you on any of that. But if you ask them if they really believe that there's absolutely nothing, about two-thirds of Americans will say, no, they believe there's something. There's some afterlife. So these, I believe, are the points people. Now, many people embrace the points system very, very uh, openly. They join a cult like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or something where points accumulate. Roman Catholicism is much like this. Points accumulate. And so the better you behave, Hinduism, points accumulate. The better you behave, the more points you earn. Any, any, any demerits are coming off, you know, when you behave badly. And so that's why the secular people that are agnostic or atheistic, they like such religions because it makes people behave. Because that's why uh, Howard Hughes only would have Mormons work at his bedside for years before his death, because Mormons worked by the points system. And he made sure they were very points-oriented in serving him. They had to earn these points of doing good deeds for him. So that points system. A fourth one is, I think, a favorite in America. You just assume that there's an afterlife. It's going to be wonderful, and you deserve it. 
you're a wonderful person. Who could think that I would deserve hell? I, like, I would like to name this version after the Lanes in honor of their southern... It's the y'all come. It's the y'all come view of hell, heaven. And I think it's popular in the South. It's popular everywhere. Now, you might have the people up in the Northeast or out in California, they're fighting against God actively by saying he doesn't exist, which is ironic. But it's pervasive. Americans believe they deserve heaven. Why are we so wealthy if God hasn't blessed us immensely and will continue that on into the afterlife? It's just natural to think that. A proponent, in my opinion, of this view was Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin said this at a friend's eulogy later in life. Everybody's getting older. His friend was older. We are spirits that bodies should be lent us while they can afford us pleasure. Assist us in acquiring knowledge or in doing good to our fellow creatures is a kind and benevolent act of God. When they become unfit for these purposes and afford us pain instead of pleasure, instead of an aid become an encumbrance and answer none of the intentions for which they were given, it is equally kind and benevolent that a way is provided by which we may be rid of them. Death is that way. Our friend and we were invited abroad on a party of pleasure. Our friend and we were invited ab abroad on a party of pleasure, which is to last forever. His chair was ready first and he has gone on before us. We could not all conveniently start together, and why should you and I be grieved at this, since we are too soon to follow and know where to find him? That's Ben Franklin's view of the afterlife. It's the all-come view. He refers to God in this comforting, thankful, sentimental way. Thank you, God, for this body. Thank you for death that eliminates it when it's become of no use to me because it's failing me. But what does Ben Franklin not refer to in this eulogy? Let me give you a partial list. Jesus, sin, holiness, judgment, sacrifice, righteousness, worthiness, redemption. That I could go on. I could give you another 20 things that Ben Franklin does not want to refer to in this man's eulogy. Why? Because they mean nothing to him. In this system of y'all come, we all deserve it. And so that's where we're going. There is this great God spirit that will welcome us with open arms and we will enter into paradise forevermore. Now, obviously, that's not Paul's view. It's not our view. It's not an orthodox view. So let's return to our text. What does Paul say? In verse 17, 417, he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Light affliction, which is but for a moment. And so temporary light affliction. Temporary light affliction. He offsets that with words that match it exactly. Temporary light affliction, eternal weight of glory. Temporary, eternal. Light, weight. Affliction, glory. So see, that's where the Christian is oriented. They're not oriented towards the worldly things. They are oriented towards an eternal weight of glory. But this perspective can only be maintained and go on here. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. 
For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. See, he starts verse 18 with while. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. How can you look at something that is unseen? Can you? Anything we look at pretty much as a person with sight, we see. You look at the sky, you see the sky. You can't look at the wind, can you? It's there, but you can see its effects. It's hard to know when the wind is blowing in the winter because all the leaves are already gone. You look at the trees, and they're those tough trees that aren't waving its branches. So see, we tend to look on things that we can see. And so that's what all unbelievers do. There is nothing for them to look at in the unseen world. But we are commanded by God to look at that which, which we cannot see. And so don't fall victim to the fallacy that you can't see that, therefore I'm not going to look at it. It's not important to me. It is important. It's the most important thing in this world. Now, in chapter 5, we go on in verse 1, and Paul introduces a metaphor. In these first three verses, he talks about the outward man and the inward man. That is somewhat of a metaphor, although it's pretty realistic. It's the body and the spirit. But now he goes on to use a very extensive metaphor here. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. So he's speaking of his body. We know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. It came up earlier. You know, you can't plan this. God does in our catechism question today. And so we learned about the resurrection of the body. God has a body prepared for us. We will inhabit that body one day. That body will clothe us one day. And so throughout these five, six verses here, that's what he's talking about. And he uses, he develops this metaphor extensively. For we who are in this tent groan. That's twice he's mentioned groaning. We are in this tent groan, being burdened. Not because we want to be unclothed. We don't want to shed the body, but further clothed. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. That we get that immortal body that God has prepared for us. Paul longed to be clothed with that body. But he recognized that for a time, he may be unclothed. After God has removed this mortal body with its sinful tendencies... Now, we believers know in our spirits that something much, much better awaits us beyond this world. So the clarity of it, though, depending on what you're looking at, depending on if you're looking at this world or you're looking at the world unseen, your ability to visualize that unseen world and live for it, that eternal weight of glory, can fade the degree to which you as a Christian, a believing Christian, immerses himself in this world, finding and seeking satisfaction exclusively in what your experiences are, that's the degree to which your eyes will grow dim to seeing what you really must see. Now, the Holy Spirit's presence within us gives us confidence. You can see in... Five, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, as a deposit. The Spirit in us functions as a deposit that we can 
depend on, that we can refer to, that we can uh, draw uh, consolation from when we are being assaulted by the world. So that's why Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. The, the Spirit is in you to cause that to rise to the surface, to cause you to recognize your sin, accept your sin, the reality of it. Don't deny it. Don't minimize it. Recognize it. Fight against it. Recognize that you need to look at the unseen to achieve that eternal weight of glory. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home at the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. He says we are confident. We are confident. In verse 8 again, he says, we are confident, yes, well-pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So you're Focusing on the unseen will give you confidence. Your drawing on that deposit of the Holy Spirit will give you confidence as you face all the challenges of life. This is not hope. It's not an assumption. It's not an award based on a point system. It's a gift of God. And God has given you a down deposit, a deposit, a down payment on that future gift that He'll give you in your very heart with the Holy Spirit. Now, your bulletin says that this sermon is entitled Invisible Houses, and I did intend to develop that idea when I gave uh, Gary the title on Tuesday, but I changed the title, and so the title is instead Foretaste of Heaven, and I'm going to share a little bit more with you. Gary's already shared some. Uh, from our uh, event, and if it made him choke up, I I, I can't imagine what it's going to do to me. I'm going to be a blubbering idiot up here soon. But but I've prayed that God would not allow that to happen, that I I hold it together so I can share this with you. But we received, uh, we were told about this thing coming. We would have this fancy dinner Friday night. It was called a gastronomical liturgy for clergy. Now, I said liturgy. It's liturgy. But uh, when uh, that came, came out a few days before the conference, um, we had one fellow, the fellow that's actually preaching in their pulpit today on Out of Heritage, uh, Matt Clark from the South Carolina Church. He responded, "Woo! he's really looking forward to this. We have some really expressive guys in our church. If we say uh, Matt Clark or Mark Robinette, those are the guys that we think are uh, charismatic at heart. They certainly are very expressive when we're in uh, our meetings. So this was on our plates. It was wrapped in this. This is Phil's. I'm using his as a demonstration since he abandoned it on the table that night. So I brought it back for him, but I figured, oh, I'll stick tape on his instead of mine. (laughs) Since he obviously didn't want his, just to get it is, is a big deal. So they were wrapped beautifully sitting on our plate, and then you open it up and you see that they were gonna treat us to 30 courses a 30-course meal, and they did. It started about five after six. They released us from where they had us sequestered in this big den of this beautiful five-store Christian resort. Well, I call it Christian. It was Christian for the weekend we were there. So, <laughs> so uh, they bring us all in, and they have this long, long table set up, uh, places for 20 of us. And so they had 
uh, place uh, our names on the plates so that we all gather and we stand at our thing, that we have a prayer, we sit down. There are, there are like nine of us on each side and two on the end, and so there are five servers on each side. Each server is serving two people, and they're going to the kitchen and coming out and then all standing in line and then bringing us 30 things. It took four hours to do this. And it was extraordinary. I didn't cry that night. I was really surprised I didn't. Phil said he shed tears when he was posting his Facebook post. I don't know. He was way at the other end of the table. Gary and I were right across from one another. But uh, it was just a beautiful time. And I'll let this up here so you guys can uh, read it after the service. Uh, and little, little ones, please don't remove it. Uh, I do want it to get to Phil. But uh, it was just a beautiful, a beautiful thing. And uh, Marianne worked really, really hard for this. The only time he got emotional that I noticed was when he got a text and he mentioned to us that our, his church had been praying for this event for months. I mean, it's just amazing how much effort they put into this. Just remarkable. So it was just a beautiful thing. So Matt Clark, who was going to be preaching at Heritage uh, uh, today, had asked a few of us, I don't know if he asked everybody, but he had asked a few of us to please send him some thank you notes pertaining to this dinner, you know, thanking them for what they'd done. Not just the dinner, but the event. So this is the letter that I sent to Matt last night. Heritage Church, and I told him I was going to share it here. <clears throat> Heritage Church hosted the Elders' Summit the past few days. They had prayed and prepared for this event for months. Via email last week, Marion Lovett sent the agenda. An event for Friday night was listed as a gastronomical liturgy for clergy. We had no idea what this meant, but it sure sounded impressive. What sounded impressive in words, however, cannot be captured in words. The chef's name was Mercy, and she put together a once-in-a-lifetime meal event that was a fitting tribute to her name. Over four hours, a team of nearly 20 people served a 30-course meal entitled A Foretaste of Heaven. Now, I want to point out, this is called foretaste. I believe they didn't put heaven on there because they didn't want to presume, to be so presumptuous as to, as to say that this would be that experience. I added it, though, because I think they should have put it on there because I think it was a foretaste of heaven. The meal was creative, incredible, delightful, indescribable. Neither words nor pictures can capture the beauty and gravity of the event. What was more stirring than the incredible food was the tone of humble service that pervaded the evening. Afterwards, Marion said that they had done we elders double honor, but the truth was that their honoring us was without limit or measure. Their honor of us far, far exceeded our worthiness, but that was the point of the dinner. The foretaste of heaven we experienced was not commensurate with our worth or value, nor was it intended to be. We were unworthy of that meal, just as we all are unworthy of heaven. The meal was a metaphor for the unmerited favor God has bestowed on his church. 
One day, all of God's children will sit down at such a feast. That feast will far outshine what was done by Heritage Church Friday night. But what was done by Heritage Church was beautiful and will remain a precious lifelong memory of everyone blessed to participate in it. So hopefully Mark, uh, Matt had the chance to share that with the folks at Heritage uh, today. So one day in the hereafter, we will sit down at a banquet, and it will knock our socks off. Uh, what we experienced the other night will be a distant memory, and what we will experience will just be overwhelming. And one thing I didn't point out in the letter, and it kind of came to me as we were there, but I'm sure Marion, he, he thinks of all this stuff from a symbolism perspective. He did not sit at the head of the table. He would at times address us from the head of the table, and throughout the night, his son, Bradley, his son-in-law, Bradley, would address us from the head of the table, but he did not sit there. Why? Because Christ is at the head of the table. Only Christ is worthy to sit at the head of the table. Ben Franklin had that beautiful sentimental eulogy at his friend's funeral, but he did not mention Christ. He only mentioned that there would be these pleasures, this pleasures, limitless pleasure in the afterlife. Apart from Christ, there is no pleasure in the afterlife. And those who enter into the afterlife apart from Christ will have no pleasure, only pain. So let's look forward to this meal that we will have in heaven one day, this banquet feast that we will have at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and uh, appreciate, though, on earth people that draw out this symbology as well as heritage did for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness, your unmerited favor, your grace, and this was pictured to us very clearly by what the people of heritage did for the elders. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for their kindness. We thank you for their service and their generosity. And yet we know, we know that it was not intended for us. It was intended for you, and that's the greatest beauty of it all. We could enjoy it, and yet it was fully intended to honor you as our King, our Lord, and the one to whom all of these uh, riches and services uh, are rendered. We thank you now, Father. Please enter into our hearts, uh, cause us to see and recognize our sins, and yet cast them aside. We pray, Father, have your Holy Spirit fill us and grant us uh, knowledge of sin such that we can dispense with the love of it, with the practice of it. We ask you now to enter into our hearts, have your Holy Spirit to fill us with love. We give you thanks for his uh, sacrifice on our behalf, and we give you thanks, Lord, for the life that we lead in service to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.